Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glatzer. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major Lindsay in Africa. In this podcast, I speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their careers and professional lives, and how they ultimately bounce back from those experiences. Today, my guest is David Dixon. David is the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Corporate Social Responsibility for Major Lindsay in Africa and Allegis Partners. In this role, he develops strategic initiatives and programs that support the company's overall DEI and corporate social responsibility goals. David also creates trainings, manages community partnerships, promotes employee engagement, and drives efforts to create a more open and inclusive environment within MLA, AP, and the global legal profession. Prior to his current role, David enjoyed a decade-long career in enrollment management, where he last served as the assistant director for admission at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, Georgia. While at Oglethorpe, David served on the university's Title Title IX Judicial Review Board and implemented several DE&I policies and recruitment campaigns, which contributed to the school being recognized as one of the U.S. News & World Report's most diverse liberal arts colleges nationwide. After earning his GD, David worked as a senior legal and policy advisor with Nelson Mullins and his education-focused legal and consulting arm, Education Council, in Washington, D.C. In this role, David combined his legal knowledge with his background in higher education to advise highly selective, top-ranked universities and graduate schools on effective DEI-related institutional policies and practices. After his time at Nelson Mullins, David joined the Houston office of Vincent and Elkins as their diversity and inclusion manager. He oversaw global recruitment, retention, development, and advancement policies, as well as all diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts to advance the firm's goals. David's efforts at Vincent helps the firm to achieve Mansfield Rules certification for the very first time. David, thank you for being my guest today. Well, thank you for having me, Rebecca. This is a, a very important uh, podcast I think you're putting out that that affects all of us in different ways, shapes, or forms, and I think uh, one of the gifts or responsibilities of having gone through, or as you're using it, bounce back, found resilience and coming out the other side. Uh, I think there's a, a responsibility to share what we've learned with others to hopefully make it easier for them on their journeys as well. So I, I appreciate your invitation and, and looking forward to our conversation today. Definitely. Well, I appreciate you having here, uh, having you here. Um, I'll get right into it, David. You previously told me that you had a life-altering and from my perspective, it was earth shattering experience when you were just 19 and uh, a sophomore in college. Um, can you tell me what happened? Yeah, uh, I think earth shattering is a, a good way of putting it. It completely flipped my world upside down, changed my entire perspective on life and, and is one of, if not the hardest, scariest things I've been through. Um, that honestly, I have to own that I was responsible for. Um, at 19, you know, most of us think that we're invincible. Not all of us. Some of us are a little bit more diligent and err on the side of caution. But, you know, at 19, I thought I was young and invincible. And um, I had been awake for over 38 hours. And I returned home for Thanksgiving break and was trying to still run around and see everybody. Uh, on top of that, 
the last time I had slept, I only slept for three hours. And it was, I had a part-time job at the mall down there. I was going to class, trying to pack my bags and get ready with the early flight. And when I got back home, you know, I still kept ripping and running. I had two days to to see all my friends and catch up. And I felt that that's what I, I needed to do. And that evening, um, after I think literally cross, crisscrossing Atlanta two to three times from Brookhaven to Stone Mountain to Alfred and Roswell to back down and, and all over uh, on the way home, uh, had my girlfriend with me at the time and stopped off at Waffle House to get something to eat. And then next stop was home. And so we were maybe honestly less than two miles from our house. And back then, Waffle House did not accept uh, cash. This was pre-credit cards at Waffle House for those in the South that are fortunate enough to be in the, the place where you can get some delicious Waffle House. They didn't take cards back then. And I didn't have cash on me, so I told her, hey, you just wait here. I'll be right back. I'm going to go to the, the bank and, and get some cash. The bank, uh, for those familiar with Atlanta, was, uh, was right near the Brookhaven Martyr Station. And the bank was maybe a half mile away. I don't even remember seeing the bank. It's not in my recollection. I was asleep by that point. And uh, traveling southbound on Peachtree, the road curves, and I was asleep. And there was another car exiting the Kroger parking lot. And I crossed over the lanes and went straight to where they were leaving and T-boned the other car. Um, I hit their car hard enough that it flipped it upside down, knocked them down the street, and I ran into the telephone pole afterwards. Wow. Uh, I woke up completely confused. The last time I had been asleep and woken up, I was in Miami. I, I was in a car that I didn't recognize because I'm driving my mom's car, not my car. I, I was completely disoriented. Finally came back and realizing, okay, you've been in a car accident. Get out. What's happening? Uh, paramedics came on scene. They're checking me out. I could see that their car was upside down. I know there's people in there. And uh, I guess, fortunately, from a physical injury standpoint, the only thing that happened to me was a bloody nose in the airbag. I was physically safe and protected. Unfortunately, uh, the passenger in the other car, a young woman um, named Chisa Dunn, uh, was from America's Georgia. She was the passenger and took the full brunt of my car uh, straight into her door. And I still remember sitting on the back of the ambulance and the, the police officer walked over and said, young man, I want to let you know what you're facing. The passenger didn't make it. By the time they were able to get her out of the car, she was already gone. And she was 21 years old, young black woman, about to be the first in her family to graduate from college. And it completely set my life in a totally, totally different direction. I just, David, like you've told me this story before and my hair is standing on end. Like I, I have like goosebumps um, because I just, I don't know what I would be thinking in this situation. I would be a wreck. I, I mean, I can't even, it's just hard to fathom because like you said, when you're young and 19 and you're starting, it, it's supposed to be a joyous time, right? College is supposed to be fun. Um, and you're supposed to be learning about yourself. And here you are excited to be coming back home and seeing your girlfriend and seeing people you missed from home. Um, for the listening audience, um, David is from Georgia and from the Atlanta area, but he was in college and undergrad in Florida. Um, and so he was back home, um, you know, it's the holidays. It's supposed to be a happy time. And this just kind of 
turned your world upside down, of course. Um, so tell me a little bit about, I guess, sort of the immediate aftermath um, of, of, of what happened. I mean, you're, I, I, I'm realizing now, I'm just realizing for the first time I've heard the story before, but you have a girlfriend at a Waffle House up the street who's sitting there wondering where you are. Uh, you know, you, you're, you've been in a car accident that where someone was killed, unfortunately. Um, I think you mentioned to me in a previous conversation that there were two passengers in the car and one was the boyfriend of the woman who was killed. Um, what, what happened in the immediate aftermath? Yeah. So the, 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 her boyfriend was the driver of the car and he did, he did sustain some injuries, of on the lighter side, comparatively speaking. And, um, he didn't go into the hospital, but was released and, and, and to my knowledge, you know, lived on um, afterwards physically I'm, I'm sure I can only imagine emotionally psychologically what he went through on the other side of that not to mention her her parents and, and a younger sister that she left behind uh, the immediacy for me was yeah my my she was my girlfriend was still at Waffle House waiting for me to return um, there was a one of the cooks at Waffle House was kind enough, a caring soul enough to talk to her and engage her and try to keep her calm. They saw fire trucks drive by and police cars drive by and even kind of cracked jokes like, oh, maybe he got an accident. Um, but time kept passing and realized that I wasn't coming back. And he walked down the street to see what was happening, was able to notify her that actually, yeah, all the, the sirens and lights were for me. And what happened and then contacted my mom um and so that night was it was a, a dark night they took me downtown to the hospitals to get checked up and have to run testing because there's a, a death in the accident they took me to the police station to take my statement um and i don't think i was brought home until i i, I, was, I couldn't tell you what time i was brought home because that happened at roughly 11.30 at night, so we're a half hour before Thanksgiving at the time of the accident. And so it was probably, I know it's still dark outside, so it was somewhere in the middle of the night that they finally brought me back to my house. And they didn't press charges at the time because they, you know, they needed to take all the statements and um, get everything back before they were pressing charges. But the next day was Thanksgiving, and it's, it's a blackout day in my memory. The only nugget of memory I have from the following day uh, was coming uh, upstairs from my bedroom, and I do remember going to the the dinner table for Thanksgiving with our family that was in town. Um, I don't remember anything said. I don't remember conversations. It's just a blip of me being in the dining room, and then going right back to my bed and going back to sleep. Yeah. And the the following day on Friday, I was. And was part of the reason I was ripping and running all day Wednesday was I was supposed to be flying back to Miami because I had a, a retail job at the mall. And, you know, day after Thanksgiving is, is heavy time. So I was supposed to be flying back and going to work. I had to call my job and say, I can't make it. Here's why. Um, but that day, a lesson my mom taught me when I was young is, you know, when you fall off the horse, you always get back up on it. And you get back up on it as soon as you can so you don't let the fear set in. And so on that Friday, I got in the car and I went and drove. Mm, Just so wow. I yeah. end up having a phobia around driving. It's yeah. Scared the yeah. Out of me. I got in the car. 
yeah. I drove. And then when I got back down to Miami, um, I had a friend come with me and I drove at night just so I wouldn't have a phobia around driving at night. And yeah. I finished out the semester somehow, some way, came home for Christmas break and I went back for the spring semester. And with each passing week, it got worse and worse and worse as the realities of what I was facing. The On the civil side, what's going to happen? Are they going to sue my family? Are, are we going to lose everything that my parents have worked so hard for to be able to you know, to provide for me, to set me up for a better future? Did I just destroy it? Um, am I going to go to jail? My worst case scenario, I was facing upwards of 15 years, uh, depending on how, you know, the attorneys and plea bargains and the judge's final decision played out and all that weighed on my mind. And I could not focus on class. And yeah. I had friends down there that were literally coming and waking me up in the morning and making me breakfast and trying to get me out of bed. Like I just, I couldn't do it. And I remember a day walking across campus uh, from my on-campus apartment, heading towards class. I mustered up enough, like, okay, go to class today, go to class today. And with each step, I got heavier and heavier and heavier. I made the classroom building and there was a bench outside the classroom door. Um, and for those who have been to University of Miami, it's a beautiful campus to walk across, but it was not a beautiful place to me at that time. And I just sat on the bench and cried because I could not bring myself to walk in the classroom. Yeah. And um, friends called my mom and let them know what I was going through. And she flew down and started the journey with uh, getting help, going to psychologists, psychiatrists, um, ended up taking uh, half of the semester I withdrew, took medical leave of absence from school and made the decision to come back home to Atlanta and navigate my healing journey from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I'm not a psychologist or a counselor or anything, but it, it sounds like you were depressed, uh, you know, uh, and I'm sure there was other things going on too. It's just the terror of knowing that um, you have no idea what's going to happen to your life. And, and like you said, feeling this responsibility of watching what your family has done and what they've built away, what you have done personally and, you know, or, you know, what you've accomplished academically and otherwise, like it's just potentially gone, like boom, like within an instant. Yeah. So thank you for explaining. And I'll add a, and oh, I'll, go ahead. I'll add a, a nugget to it. Yes, to your point. Yes. Severe depression, okay. um, severe depression, anxiety set in like the, to a, a debilitating degree. That was a, a multi-year battle to, to climb out of. Um, yeah. And added in there was a layer a layer of fear that I would never be able to express to her family, to her parents, to, geez, to the Dunn family, how remorseful I was. That yeah. I, I knew I had, I, I couldn't do anything but own it. It was my choice. I should not have been out driving. Even that night before I left the house, my mom was like, you should stay home. You don't need to be out. Just yeah. stay here, get some sleep. You've been up since, and I'm a night person, generally. Like I've actually, through my studies, got diagnosed as being nocturnal, delayed sleep phase syndrome. My circadian rhythms prefer to be awake at night than during the day. So in my head, I was like, oh, it's nighttime. I'll wake back up anyways. Um, yeah. But the level of exhaustion, you know, yeah. could not override that. And mm -hmm. being able to, one of my biggest fears was meeting them, facing them one day. You know, I, I wanted to go to the funeral. Attorneys are like, no, you cannot. 
do yeah. that. You cannot have contact with the family. You cannot, not until everything on the legal side is finalized, you cannot have contact. And all I wanted to do was tell them I'm sorry. And I know there's nothing I can do to, to, to change it, but just to own it. But part of my fear was that from an emotional standpoint that I was so detached from them like before that I could remember crying maybe three times in my life you know I was more stoic and you you deal with you suck up you stay positive and just keep marching um and I dealt through other things in my life that way which aren't necessarily the, the healthiest way but the fear was that I would see them and wouldn't be able to really let them know how sorry I was and how remorseful I was yeah yeah that that makes sense that that makes a lot of sense. Um, whew. So uh, you had said to me before in a prior conversation, David, that um, so you walked us through, you know, kind of the immediate aftermath, the trying to get through that semester and Christmas break and then trying to kind of suck it up buttercup and finish spring of your sophomore year. And it just became this impossibility, understandably. So you returned to, you took the medical withdrawal, you returned to Atlanta. Can you tell me, um, I know they didn't initially press charges, but at, at a certain point they did. Um, and when was it, was that after you got back to Georgia um, or were you still in Florida trying to go to school in Miami when that happened? No, it took over a year and that was one of the scariest times. Even part of my anxiety on campus was every time I saw campus police or Coral Cables police, there was this fear that I was just going to get souped up and yeah. arrested and you don't know what's coming. My mom called the Cap County Police Department every month, once a month. Have you pressed charges? What are the charges? Have you pressed charges? What are the charges? What are we dealing with? And the following, so that was, accident was a November 21st, 2001. And about three days before Christmas in 2002, five sheriffs showed up at our house right early in the, day, in the morning my mom, i'm asleep and my mom comes downstairs and wakes me up and said the sheriff's department's here and they're here for you the holidays um, are brought for you i would imagine i, I mean I, we, we can get into this a little bit later but i just would have so much angst and anxiety around the holidays given this and i know that that sounds like you know given what happens i don't want to make light of the young woman's life who was killed but i also in my mind i'm thinking you know i'm putting myself in your shoes like every time the holidays come around i would imagine that i would feel just all kinds of anxiety um because you've had two terrible things happen um you know around the holiday time yeah ho holidays have been tough uh, you know, in, in that instance, it, you know, we'll go from a Thanksgiving fatal car accident that I'm responsible for to three days before Christmas, I get arrested. And at that time, they said a warrant had been out for my arrest since September. Wow. And we're like, okay, but we've called you September, October, and November, and December, and you said nothing. Charges hadn't been pressed. Come to find the back end, the, uh, the detective that was on the case had written it up and put it in the system, but never got the documents out to me because I think he had mono or something like that went out sick. Yeah, <laughs> and so we never got notification of what had happened. And um, fortunately, one of the, the, the lead sheriff that was out there 
uh, who happened to be a, a, a black man heard the story. He was like, this is, yes, this is a crime, but this is ridiculous that we're using this many resources. Come find you. I have murderers and rapists and other people that I should be bringing in right now. So he didn't handcuff me. Um, he walked me out to the car, unmarked car, drove me out to the station and was kind enough to make calls to get me on the docket that day. Well, you told me in a prior conversation, David, that uh, so you got arrested. You were, you know, out um, on, on bond and um, thanks to your mom. And um, then there was a period of time between that and when the trial occurred. How, how much time was that between when you were released um, and, and, and when the trial occurred or supposed to yeah. occur? Yeah, so I didn't have my actual hearing until spring it was around may june of 2004 so the same week that i was going into court to you know and i have to own acknowledge privilege in this position that i had a mother savvy enough to navigate the way that she did that she had the resources and found position to get a lawyer um to to work and fight for me in this in this in this instance um, so walking into court, I did have a plea bargain on the table, uh, and it was reducing the charges from felony down to misdemeanor. And it was four years of probation with the first year spent on house arrest and leading up to the trial, the months before that, um, my depression kicked in even heavier. Like it had been an up and down battle for years. I had been on and off meds. I'd been to see several different therapists. The first one you know, made me feel worse about myself. I felt chastised by him. And so I found another therapist, um, uh, Dr. Carter, who's there in, in Atlanta, is also a professor at one of the universities, like was was my godsend on that front. And I had an uncle uh, who was my uncle uh, was willing enough to share about his experiences with uh, alcoholism. And that he'd even checked himself in the facility. And, and when I struggled, I hit a, a bottom place. And he sit, sat and had lunch with me and was like, I'll go over there with you. We'll go over to Ridgeview, just talk to him, see if you want, that, want the help this way. And so by the time I got to the hearing, I was actually had checked myself into uh, the Ridgeview Institute up in, uh, in Cobb County and was going through inpatient treatment for depression and anxiety and trying to climb out of it. And I had to be released from there in order to go to my hearing mm. um, the same week that all my friends from University of Miami were graduating. Mm. And so I had my own sort of graduation from the school of life on the same day that, you know, if I had made different choices, I'd be crossing the stage with my friends. And um, so I walked in on that day into the Cab County Courthouse and I had supportive friends, uh, my girlfriend I was dating at the time who had to, to pull away from, she was on the track team at Georgia Tech and she left to be there for me. And my best friend uh, who was at Morehouse at the time, he left, you know, and showed up at, at, at court for me and my mom, my grandparents came, you know, so I had loved ones around me. Um, but it's still a scary moment because, you know, you can walk into court and even though there's a plea bargain on the table, a judge has full power to not accept it, to go in a different direction. So in my head, I, I was still walking in a situation where I'm potentially facing 15 years. 
right. as my okay. worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, but to my calling it my benefit is so understatement, the blessing, the gift uh, was her parents, her family, uh, Eddie and Chisa Dunn asked to meet me before going in to court. And they walked up to me and next week, I can still picture it. My mother was walking first and I saw her mom hug my mom. And then her, uh, Miss Dunn came, came to me and gave me the biggest, warmest hug. That was so, so different than what I pictured, expected, could have never imagined that day going that way. And she just whispered in my ear, we're gonna get through this. And you could hear that it wasn't just a we as in she and her husband and their younger daughter, but all of us collectively, we're gonna get through this. And they asked me to um, make a promise, make two promises to them. And, and it was rooted in their faith and their belief of in the, in the power of forgiveness and knowing that it was something they needed to, to do um, by their faith and also for them. Forgiveness is a powerful tool and it's a, really a gift that we give to ourselves first and foremost. You release yourself from that pain, from that anger, from that resentment and allowing space and freedom to move forward and, and bring in more love and light, let more love and light flow through you. And they found the strength to do that. And she said to me, we know that our daughter was such a beautiful light. She was such a beautiful spirit that if your paths cross this way, if she was used in your life this way, you're meant for something great. And we don't know what that is, but we know that it has to be something great. And so promise us that A, you'll go back to school and wow. finish your degree, because I still hadn't gone back to college. I, 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 I didn't have it in me. And uh, you know, school and education was important to their daughter, about to be the first in her family to graduate from college. She's breaking generational chains. Like, so you have to do that. And two, promise us you'll make a difference with your life. Every difference that you make is bringing that much more meaning out of this moment, out of this incident, out of our, our daughter's life being taken. And then we all walked in the court together and they sat on my side of the courtroom. And after I stood up and spoke to the judge and my grandfather stood up and spoke to the judge and you know my attorney you know, said his pieces, the, the parents had prepared a statement for the, uh, the DA to speak on their behalf and she actually stopped him from reading it and she stood up herself and asked the judge for leniency on my behalf and i still remember um judge johnny panos uh who's uh, i think still on the bench out there in dekalb county he was like i've been on the bench for decades and i've never seen an act of forgiveness like this and so i'm learning a lesson today and so if i can keep it with with the power that i have i want to honor the parents request i don't want the state the court the the legal system to impede you from keeping carrying out your promise to her family so he did some quick math and calculations and was like okay your house arrest would have cost you x amount of dollars because you have to pay for house arrest yourself um instead of doing even house arrest as part of your probation i'll give you a choice son do you want to do the house arrest or do you want to make a donation and she said Dunn's name to wherever her parents wanted to go. Um, I think obviously to most that's a, a easy choice. <laughs> so yes. nice. 
And, but again, a situation that worked out way better than I could have expected it, from a legal standpoint, from the emotional standpoint of encountering her parents, but the gift that came from it wasn't just the power of forgiveness, which is something I try to live by and, and carry through in my life, but it gave me purpose. It gave me a deeper direction to a young man who didn't know what he was doing, where he was going. You know, I I had privileges, social family growing up. My, my mother put herself through college in first gen. She and my aunts and uncles and my grandfather, who was president of the uh, Flint, Michigan NAACP chapter through the civil rights movement, you know, they fought to to get us better ahead. My my father, who um, who dropped out of college his sophomore year because he he got his girlfriend who became his first wife uh, pregnant with my my older sister. We're about seventeen years apart, but he dropped out of college and started dressing department store windows. But he climbed, and um, I guess maybe my my first nugget of having to deal with uh, the challenges life throws your way happened before uh, I can really recollect is it's my dad dying at in a plane crash at, at five months old. And, you know, but what he had built to, he was the youngest vice president and only vice pre- only black vice president in retail in America at the time. And he was at a, a major corporation, um, first Zares and then uh, Jefferson Ward. And so they had worked hard you know, to to get me to where I was, but I was still lost. And I started mm-hmm. off college as pre-dental major, uh, or doing pre-dental with a business major, and I was going to be orthodontist. I didn't care about straightening teeth. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, yeah. biology courses let me know very well that I, I really didn't have, like, well, I can do the sciences. I didn't really have the interest in it, but yes. I was lost. I didn't have a direction. I didn't have a purpose and a drive. Um, I was doing because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, right. I had public school education for the first half of my K-12 and the second half I uh, was at a private Catholic school at Marist for 7 through 12 and going to college is what you're supposed to do. But I yep. didn't know yep. why I was going. And even my mother told me senior year, like, I think you should take a gap year. I think you should go work. I think you should travel. I think you should do something to find your direction. And I thought it was re- reverse psychology. I was like, she would kill me. Like, we're the next gen. I have to go <laughs> to right. college. But, right. you know, without that direction, you're kind of just, you know, a ship being tossed by the waves and you're in the wind. And they gave me one. Um, Chisa, who I consider one of my angels, I, I still feel out there looking after me. Her parents, they gave me a deeper purpose and, a, I guess, a, a one of my core inner compasses that, that drives me to this day. Wow. Once again, goosebumps. Uh yeah, I, I, this, it's really something, um, like the judge said, and like you've said, it's, 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 it's really a testament to the power of forgiveness. And, um, I'm grateful to them for doing this too, just because, you know, we, we get to have you at MSP and we get to, I get to have this conversation with you. Things might've been very, very different. Um, otherwise, well, let me ask you this, you know, this con- this this podcast, the theme of my podcast is about resilience and bouncing back. But the reality of the matter is um, we are not like bouncing balls. It doesn't happen in a second. Uh, I, I imagine there was some initial shock, you know, gratitude, of course, um, 
you know, I, I would guess that, you know, there's been this fight or flight response. This, the cortisol has been banging around your body for 40 years, <laughs> you know, you know, from 2001 to or three years from 2001 to 2004. You don't know what's going to happen to your life uh, from one minute to the next in the short term or the long term. And I mean, I just in addition to the depression and anxiety, I'm sure there's just a great deal of stress. Um, and then you go through this incredible day where her parents, where Cheese's parents, you know, forgive you and want the judicial system to be lenient on you and the judge agrees and you have all of this support coalesce um, around you. What do you feel after that? You know, what do you do with that? I mean, yes, in the long term, you understand that you now have um, a great deal of purpose and you've got to make something of this experience, you know, because of the direction of what her, you know, what her parents are asking, what the judge is asking, what your family is expecting and friends are expecting from you. But you can't just like bounce back from that, I imagine. And so I'm wondering what that looked like with the ensuing days, months, weeks, weeks, years. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you could have conceptualized what that would have looked like when you were in the midst of it for those three perilous years. And so I'm sort of wondering, um, you know, how, how did we get here? <laughs> how, how did we get to today? And I know that's a lot of years in between, but, you know, <laughs> how did you get to law school and how did you find your way? Uh, it, the immediacy afterwards was, yes, a sense of relief, of relief, a sense of gratitude, also um, an increased sense of responsibility without feeling currently prepared or able to live out and carry that responsibility that they gave me. Mm, mm. That's a that's a lifelong responsibility. There's uh, to this day, I still don't feel like I've repaid them. Um, and there's moments I have other people remind me of all the lives I've touched along the way, and my various points in career, and people I've helped, and you know, you have done, you're doing it, you're doing it, and something in me still feels like I haven't done enough. Um, but at that immediately afterwards, it's as much as it was a relief, it was also an added um, an added pressure that I wasn't mentally, emotionally, physically. You know, I say physically, I'd, I'd gotten out of shape. I was a an athlete through high school. We won state championship for basketball. I played in the World Series when I was 15, and my freshman year of college, I was working all the time, so I was in good shape. And I depression has uh, a great way of killing that. Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. On, on all facets of my life, I wasn't in a healthy place to carry that out. And so the first part of it was um, completing my my treatment. You know, I was still in. Like I said, they released me um, from. You know, I, I was voluntarily in there, um, but in the program, it was like you need to be. On how so I had to go back into uh, treatment and successfully complete it. It was stage one. Um, then it was navigating the community service hours and trying to figure out my life. How do I do this? How do I get back on track? How do I get back into school? How do I get myself mentally healthy enough to do it? And you know, in the one sense, I I lived with, with my best friend um, Michael Griffin and and just having it's like my brother we're both only children or raised only children um i have a a half sister if i wasn't raised with her 
and having him around who was still living his life. You know, he continued on and graduated and went on to jobs and internships. And so I had a close example of it can be done. You can you can do it. But at the same time, watching him do that was a mirror to to reflect and see how far off I was from being able to carry out their mission. And then one of the 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 biggest blessings in my life is is my now wife and we've yeah, my my best friend for the 20 years now. Um I wouldn't have met her if it were not for my car accident. Um that's what brought me home from Atlanta, I mean, from Miami to Atlanta, which was the same year that she started college and moved out from Houston to Atlanta. And we met and were friends for years. And um, not too long, a couple of years after, maybe years after I had, had my hearing and, and hit that next place, uh, life circumstances put it that she needed a place to live and she moved in with my best friend and I. And it evolved into uh, we actually we've lived together ever since. <laughs> Once you know that, it's funny how that happens sometimes. <laughs> but she, we we rallied around each other. Um, she had gone through some tough times and was climbing out of um, depression, and she kicked me into gear. And I still vividly remember the day that she went into my closet. I wasn't working. I'd flip-flopped around a whole bunch of things. I went to paramedic school and finished paramedic school. I was like, okay, I'll, I'm going to become a paramedic and a firefighter. And that's how I can make a difference and help people. And that wasn't my stick. I did rounds of internships uh, at Grady Hospital. And I was like, yeah, no, this isn't me. Um, I went through bartending school. I was a bartender. I loaded trucks at UPS. Um, but I, I, I wasn't working at a time and wasn't really, I was lost directionally and she went into my closet pulled one of my suits out and she said put on your suit right now we're going to the mall to get a job and we drove over to Lenox and we walked up and down Lenox like oh, I don't want to work there I don't want to work there and and she cracked the joke she was like oh you too bougie to work in in Lenox okay let's go across to Phipps and for those <laughs> that don't know there's there's two malls across the street from each other in Atlanta one yeah. is more the regular normal shops and malls and the other side is like all the high-end yeah. um, stores over in Fifth. So she's like, fine, then let's go to Fifth. So you can work over right. there. Right. <laughs> if, if Linux isn't fancy enough for you, we'll walk across the street and go to the fanciest of fancies. Right, right. Um, we go to Cartier and get you a job. Cartier <laughs> yeah. didn't hire me, but, but Cole Han did. Uh, there so you I, go. There I you go. I jumped back in, so <laughs> at Cole Han, and it was a, a very humbling experience to go from a path of being at one of the top universities in the country, a top research institution and federal resourced and to be at a place where I'm selling shoes a hundred percent commission in the mall. Yeah. And I'm trying to climb my way back up and honor her family, honor my family, and also set up that I feel the responsibility of you're supposed to make it better for the next generation. We didn't have kids at the time, but I know everything I do for setting up my career was going to position my future child who I have now a four-year-old just turned four on Tuesday um (laughs) thank you thank you uh but it was humbling but it was my wife or friend at the time but now wife that really kicked me into gear she was like you can do this you have to do this now you have to learn to fight Mm -hmm. you have to fight for yourself you have Mm -hmm. to find your confidence back and you have to, to humble yourself yeah this is where you're starting now but this isn't where 
you're going to finish. And she believed in me. She, she loved me, loved me where I was, um, was able to see the gifts in me, the potential in me, um, and, and I with her. And it was a, a journey um, from starting there to finally encouraging me to, to, to get back in school. You got to go back to school and finish it. And yeah. so yeah. I ended up enrolling at, at Oglethorpe University. Uh, they had an adult degree program so I could go to class at night. I was still working full time and she had encouraged me to go back to school. Um, and so I, I did that. And when I first started, I was loading trucks. I'd left Kohan because the that 100% commission at instilling that level of product um, yeah. <laughs> isn't necessarily the most lucrative. It's a tough career. job. It's a tough yeah. job. <laughs> jumped over the loading trucks at UPS and was going to school at night um, and finished my degree that way. And then it came to a point, I was like, okay, you can do better. She's like, you're a better position. You can make the next step at, you know, upping the career more easily than I can't push it, do it. And I'm like, but I can't get a job. You know, my resume got, <laughs> you know, a gap is an understatement. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I talked talk to my uh, advisor at the time. I was like, I need another job. UPS is killing me. Physically, I'm looking great. I shed off probably 30 right. pounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, any sort of uh, pounds gained where the good old UPS can can help shed them. Um, no, that's get lifting boxes above your head and all day. That, that'll do it. That'll do it. Um, yes. no, that's, that's good. So what, what did the advisor say? So he, he told me, he was like, well, they just posted two positions in the admissions office. I think you'd be good at it. Oh, okay. I was like, okay. never thought about that. Okay, so I, I applied. They were hiring for a counselor um, to do the recruiting and admissions assistant. Um, but the counselor position required bachelor's degree, which I still hadn't completed yet. So I applied for the assistant position, and I got the job. And so I started off processing applications and prospect cards and transcripts and all the back-end data entry uh, for the admissions office. Uh, but when I walked in for the interview... You know, sometimes, you know, usually a lot of questions, where do you see yourself? Where do you want to go? And I told them flat out in my interview, I, I want to start here. I'll learn here. I was like, but I want to be a counselor. Yes. Um, that's my next step. I want to rise up. I want to go forward and, and keep climbing. And I was fortunate enough that within, within my first year, no, year and a half, about a year and a half in, I still had not finished my degree. Um, but our VP came to me and said, hey, you told me you wanted to be a counselor. Are you still interested? I was like, well, absolutely, yes. He was like, well, one of our counselors is leaving to go to grad school. Um, how much more time do you have left on your, your degree? I was like, well, I have, I think, three more classes uh, that I'll finish up this fall. And she was like, well, are you willing to take the fall off? And can you finish those classes in the spring because fall is travel season? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, she's like, that, he, so. dangle this in front of you. Get her done. <laughs> yes, yeah, she's like, you still have to finish <laughs> because yeah. this job does require a degree, but you're close enough and you've been in here. We'll give you give you a shot. And so I moved up to admissions counselor. Um, I finished my degree that next semester. Uh, actually, the same semester I graduated, um, I got married and we got married the following weekend. And then I stayed on board. Part of my motivation for staying in admissions longer, as much as I loved the work and what I was doing in my university and my colleagues and um, 
our VP was amazing at what she does, Lucy Lush, and our uh, then university president, Larry Shaw, became a mentor. Um, they encouraged me to grow. They gave me space to try. I got to write policy for bulletins um, and change and create recruitment campaigns, you know, early on with their support. Um, but part of it also was staying on so I could uh, pay for my wife to go to school. And she finished her, while working full time, she finished a two and a, a four year degree in two and a half years while working full time. Wow. She was so doing 24 credit hour semesters. You, yes, you, she is. you married a badass. Okay. That's good. <laughs> yes, I mean, she's, it makes sense. She's the badass in the family. I'm just trying to, to live up to her. And um, so, yeah, it, it evolved into to being there. Um, that journey and through really uh, volunteer work, I got involved with our professional organization, the National Association of College Admission Counseling. And started, it started with showing up to volunteer at a Hill Day. We were doing advocacy for education at the state capitol in Georgia. I was like, oh, I kind of like this. Uh, I like what we're doing. And I kept getting involved. I ended up co-chairing uh, the Government Relations Committee for my professional org in the state of Georgia. That ended up leading to me being uh, appointed to the National Government Relations Committee. So we were doing the federal level advocacy. And alongside that, this was in part encouragement. Uh, conversations with uh, Larry Shaw, who was a, a JD EDD combination, um, and I asked him about law school, and he was like, "It's helped me." He's like, "I'm not licensed to practice anymore, but it, everything I learned when you know, he got his JD from Penn, became a civil rights litigator uh, for years, then his career bounced into um, commercial real estate." at a company on that side. Then he went back into education and was VP of Swarthmore. He was like, but my legal education has helped me the entire way, the critical thinking skills, the way to formulate an argument. He's like, even sitting here now as president, you know, we were there in the middle of building a new campus center and new dorms. He was like, I'm going out to, to hearings <laughs> in DeKalb County to get permits. And um, some of the things that we draft, I'll draft it first before I send it out to our outside counsel. So I'm saving us on undoable hours being charged to us. Uh, he's like in the credentials themselves, yeah. open up doors. And yeah. so I was inspired to uh, to go back to law school from him and also my wife. Uh, you know, people always say, hey, I want to be, a, I love arguing. So I, I, I want to be a lawyer. I'd be a great lawyer. That was part of my wife. She was like, you love arguing and debating. Um, I think you need to go to law school. <laughs> go to law school. <laughs> go get some more ar ar additional earning potential, my friend. Yeah, yeah no, this yeah. is good. This, this is really good. Well, let me uh, ask you this, David. We're running a little bit close to time. Um, and I, I mean, your story is incredible. And it's, I, I mean, every time I hear it, I'm just, there's so many lessons. There's so many nuggets um, of, uh, you know, places to learn from what you've experienced. Um, let me ask you this as a final question and also for our listening audience. Um, you mentioned to me, you've got, you've got a now four-year-old son. And I am curious, you know, what lessons from this experience, all of it, oh, you know, would you say are the ones that you're most eager to impart to him? A belief in having faith. And yeah. I say this from the, the broadest sense. I don't mean this in a specifically religious sense or any one particular religion. And uh, for me, it, it, it comes from, from multiple facets. But I remember a day, and this was while I was at Ridgeview doing the inpatient treatment and they use um, 
the 12 step model, whether it's emotional anonymous or NA or A, whatever it is, the 12 step model. And, and the first step in that model is accepting that there's a higher power. And mm -hmm. I struggled with it because I'm in my household, one side of my family, and I'll use two words, but it still doesn't cover the nuances of that side of the family. Somewhere most are between agnostic, atheist, somewhere in that space, some spiritual, but that was more the influence, particularly from my grandfather. But I, I don't believe in the higher part. I'm not religious. I'm not spiritual. And the woman told me, you're getting caught up in semantics. Mm, mm, okay. I need you to find something bigger than you, more powerful than you, that you believe in, that exists. And she pointed and said, I don't care if it's that couch over in the corner. If you believe in that couch and think that couch is a powerful thing that you can believe in that helps you carry forward, then believe in that couch. And so I, I went back to my room that night and I journaled and I thought and what I landed on is teachings from my mom, teachings from my grandfather, and that there was a deep belief that people are good. We do some bad things. There are definitely some bad things that have happened. There are bad actors, but at the core, people are good. And I've always believed that. So if I can believe that people are good and I can also acknowledge that people collectively are bigger than me and more powerful than me as an individual, there is something more powerful than me that I believe in. And it's been a, a journey from that, that moment, which is, you know, included pulling from teachings. Yeah, I went to Catholic school and we took what, six years of religion courses and in, in, in various ways. And um, my wife and I were baptized together. Uh, it unfolded in a crazy, uncanny way. And I've read the Tao Te Ching. I've read the Tao of Pooh. I've read um, from various spiritual things. My wife studied to be a yoga teacher at one point. So I got under practice of yoga, um, reading Khalil Gibran, The Prophet, or The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, uh, Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh, you know, all different teachings and lessons and directions that are all faith-centered. And for me, at the, I think at the core of it, the core of it, the foundation of it is what's helped me keep moving forward beyond the village that's around me that supports me and um, that I, I lean on, reach out to, I wouldn't be here without. It's this deep faith that all things are used for my good. Even mm. the worst of things, even having made a decision that took someone's life, took someone's daughter, took someone's girlfriend, took someone's sister, that was used to better my life. And so I'm grateful for it. And, you know, I've, I've made mistakes. I've messed up on things. I'm still not perfect. Even in law school, by the time I got to my, my last year, and I was in the litigation class. Not only did life bring it full circle that the Georgia State for the, the litigation trial um, hosts them at the DeKalb County Courthouse. And I oh, ended up being wow. Talk about full circle. Place yeah. in the exact same courtroom. I was in Judge Johnny Pounce's courtroom as a law student for my litigation class. The same courtroom, the same exact room in the same courthouse where you went to a hearing where you thought you may be in prison for 15 years of your life. That yes. is, I mean, talk about that's 
that has to be kismet or something. <laughs> it has yes. to be something. Yeah, it, it I don't is, know. You can't help. Um, it's a big courthouse, people. For those of you who have not been to the DeKalb County <laughs> Courthouse, it's huge. It's multi-levels. I mean, the likelihood of that happening is pretty amazing. Um, well, yeah. this, this deep sense of everything in my life, even though the, the, at the times it may feel like the world is ending, your life is over, you have completely messed up, there's no way to come back for it, I pull from those past experiences and I have a deeply ingrained belief that all things are being used for my favor and sometimes I just can't see at the moment but as long as I keep living I stay true to my core purpose and I have the core purpose of a the promise I made to the Dunn family of making a difference and my core purpose of making sure that my son gets a better life than we had when I try to stay in a place where I get excited when things are really, really bad because it's almost like the worse they are, the better something is coming afterwards. Yeah. I know it's a reset. To, to, to borrow from my little um, pun or analogy or whatever, you, the 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 harder the the hitting the ground, the higher the uh, the ball bounces, so to speak. So sorry, I couldn't yeah. help. Off, David, I had to do that. Um, but, no, I like that. No, one. I'm with you. I I'm with you. I believe that too. Forward. Uh, Will Smith talks about failing forward. I heard another friend use the term of falling upwards. Yeah, um, falling upwards, those, bouncing yeah. higher, um, and taking a harder hit. And I, I think that's a great way of it's. It's a good one for 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 lawyers and recruiters too. You know, if something terrible happens, um, you know, it means you're due for uh, something good on the other on the other side of it. Well, I just want to thank you for your time today. I want to take you thank you for being so forthright um and open and um you know transparent about your feelings and the, the good bad and the ugly um in terms of what happened to you and i just can't thank you enough david i know our readers or um, our listeners i should say i know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this um it's chock full of lessons um and and reminders of things that we might already know and need reminders of so i just want to thank you again and um and I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. Join us next time for another story about thriving after overcoming challenges. You can find Bouncing Back and other programming for lawyers on MLA's Legal Talk Network.